Loving Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for, once again, a powerful passage filled with powerful exhortations. And we pray that you would burn them into our hearts, you would open our eyes, you would cause us to see with simplicity and purity what it means to be devoted to Christ. That we would indeed become and act as living sacrifices transformed by the renewing of our minds in order that we may prove out in our actions that which is your good and acceptable and perfect will. We pray this in Jesus' precious name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. It's great to see so many uh, young folks here, several whom I haven't seen since last year at camp time. I'm looking forward to the week with you guys. Uh, I will be there, and, and my dear brother Robert Warner is going to pinch hit for me next week. Uh, and, we'll, and I know he's going to have a great message for us, I believe, from Joshua, right? Cool. Um, so I look forward to listening to that one. I want to start this morning uh, by clarifying something from last week, something that kind of popped up in a number of conversations with folks after that message last week that struck me as important enough to address this time. Here's a scenario that we didn't really talk about. Let's say you learn that you have a brother in Christ who finds a particular behavior offensive, but you're convinced in Christ that you have the freedom to practice that behavior. One of many possible examples could be, for instance, drinking a beer or wine or another alcoholic drink without getting drunk, of course, because the Bible teaches against drunkenness. Now, that brother, you know, has no history of alcohol abuse, and you know that he's firmly resolved in his own personal conviction that he is not to drink. That's what he believes he must do before God. So it's clear that he wouldn't be tempted to drink just because he saw you drinking. We saw last week that that scenario is not what Paul's talking about in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, because in both those passages, he's talking about avoiding studiously the possibility of causing your brother to violate his own conscience before God. But the question is, shouldn't you still refrain from drinking a beer in that brother's presence out of love for him, out of the desire not to provoke a conflict or an offense? That's an important question. And I believe the answer has everything to do with the approach that that brother with the more restrictive set of boundaries takes regarding that issue. Here's what I mean. If he's not attempting to impose his convictions on you and on others in the body, then for you to refrain from that behavior in order to give priority to love is commendable. It's not required by Scripture, as it would be in the, if there were a real danger of tempting him to violate his conscience but it's commendable for you to defer to avoid that action for the sake of love. But if, on the other hand, your more rules-oriented brother takes it upon himself to enforce his personal convictions on you and on others in the body, I firmly believe it is a disservice to the body for you to defer to his wishes. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 23, I believe it's quite apparent that Paul was picking a fight with the Judaizers. who were seeking to impose restrictions 
Jewish dietary restrictions and holy days on Gentile believers. Paul did not just go along with them to keep the peace or to avoid giving offense. In fact, he explicitly and forcefully told the believers at Colossae that they should not let men act as their judges in regard to such things. In fact, he said that for them to do so is to defraud you of your prize in Jesus Christ. But here's the biggest issue in that passage in Colossians 2. Paul said such men are not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with the growth which is from God. By the imposition of their personal convictions on others, they were, in effect, seeking to unseat Christ as the head of the body and to take that role for themselves. That's the way Paul presents it. Paul said that man imposed rules about what is acceptable for you to handle or taste or touch, have the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence, and you do not have to submit to them. In Galatians 2, Paul recounts a situation in which he found it necessary to rebuke the apostle Peter and his dear friend and mentor Barnabas because those two men were giving a cold shoulder to Gentiles in their midst and refusing to eat with them out of fear of those whom Paul called the party of the circumcision. What that means is Peter and Barnabas were caving in to legalistic Judaizers who were, again, bent on making Gentiles act like Jews. And that's fairly amazing because according to Acts chapter 10, who was it to whom God directly gave the revelation that the dietary restrictions of the Mosaic law were not to be imposed on the church? It was Peter. Paul didn't mince words and get this, he didn't even take pains to rebuke Peter and Barnabas in private. In Galatians 2.14, Paul says, But when I saw that they, Peter and Barnabas, were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's Peter, in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? Beloved, Love for the brethren sometimes requires that we take a protective role toward the body. Love sometimes demands that we take an uncompromising position in the defense of grace. All believers, and especially those who act as under-shepherds of Christ for the oversight of the body, are charged with both the nurture and the protection of the body of Christ. So when a brother or sister in our midst adopts a course of action that negates grace or that usurps the role of the Holy Spirit in the lives of his children, that course of action is a threat to the very headship of Christ over his own church, and it must be opposed. Now, we must certainly and always act toward one another with the spirit of love, humility, gentleness, Respect with a commitment to preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We are, as Paul said in Romans 14, 19, always to pursue the things that make for peace, but he didn't stop there. 
He said we are to pursue those things which make for the building up of one another, not the tearing down. When we see something tearing down the body of Christ, we take action to deal with it. That's a good segue into this morning's passage, which continues our assignment to build up the church and not to tear it down. Romans 15, verses 1 through 13, which is our passage today, is the last of Paul's strong sets of exhortations in this epistle before he moves into concluding comments, admonitions, and instructions. These 13 verses contain critically important instruction to the church from Paul, who is, of course, speaking on behalf of God to the church. In chapter 14, Paul's exhortations focused on one aspect of our relationships with other believers in the body of Christ. That chapter, of course, was about how we handle differences regarding those matters of conscience or personal conviction concerning things that God has neither explicitly forbidden nor explicitly commanded. And Paul exhorts those who believe that they have great freedom in Christ in such matters not to pass judgment on those who believe they have less freedom in regard to such matters and vice versa. We're not to pass judgment in either direction. In matters of personal conviction, we are to steadfastly give those kinds of differences over to God and never to demand that our brother comply with our opinions on those matters. He's very forceful about that. Here in the first three verses of chapter 15, Paul presents the ultimate corrective to that tendency we have to be divided over such things. And that corrective is denial of self, which also happens to be the corrective for a couple of million other things that we tend to get wrong. Do you want to know how to put an end to divisions in the body of Christ that arise because we draw the boundaries on certain behaviors in different places? You want to know how to, how to put an end to divisions in the body that arise because we're not all wired the same way? We don't have the same backgrounds? It's very straightforward. Let every believer stop being concerned about himself. And instead, be focused on building up his brother and his neighbor. In verse 2, Paul uses the term neighbor rather than brother, but then he immediately shifts back to talking about one another. Uh, I believe his focus in these three verses and in these 13 verses continues to be on relationships within the body of Christ. But the exhortation that he gives us here in these first three verses has ramifications for all of our relationships in the body and outside the body. In fact, it goes directly to our motivation for sharing the gospel with other people. In verse 1, some translations uh, curiously support the word just, and you'll notice I crossed it out, where it says, Now we ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not... Just please ourselves. No, the word just is not in the Greek and it shouldn't be in the English. And and I know that it shouldn't be in the English because in verse 3 it says, for even Christ did not please himself. It doesn't say he didn't just please himself. He didn't please himself. 
at all. Jesus set aside His own well-being in the most absolute possible sense. In fact, the cross is the most uncompromising example of self-denial in all of history. Paul's exhortation in these verses is that we are to disregard our own pleasure, our own well-being, and to our, and to, or to focus instead all of our attention and our efforts on the well-being and the edification of our brothers and sisters in Christ and of our neighbors who do not yet know Him. That's the assignment, and it really is that straightforward. The example or template by which we clearly understand how that assignment works is, as always, Jesus Christ. As in all that God assigns to us, we know how to live the life of conformity to Christ by looking at Christ. (laughs) The question is not, what would Jesus do? The question is, what did Jesus do? The evidence is already set before us. There's no mystery here. We don't have to ask or wonder what it is that we're supposed to be doing as followers of Christ. We don't have to wait around like bumps on a log trying to figure that out. All that pondering is really just a dodge. It's a way of postponing our assignment. If you and I are busy treating others as God and Christ already treated us, We won't ever have to ask how we're supposed to live or what we're supposed to be doing because we'll already be doing it. What does Paul say here about the example of self-denial that we've already been given by Christ? Well, in verse 2, Romans 15, 2, he quotes from Psalm 69, 9, in which King David declared prophetically the words of Messiah. He said, The reproaches of those who reproached thee, God, fell upon me, Christ. To reproach means to disgrace or to discredit. Jesus very deliberately laid aside his own well-being and the honor that he uniquely deserved, and he made himself the target of our grievous insults against God. And then he paid the penalty for those same grievous insults against God. Jesus did not please himself. He didn't do what anyone who was seeking to serve himself, would ever do. Instead, he gave himself up for the well-being of those who despised him and who despised his father. And he did so entirely in order to accomplish accomplish the will of his father. If you want to be clear about the nature and the magnitude of God's assignment for you, you look at Christ. He's our example of self-sacrifice, And God's assignment to us is to imitate Him. To set aside all concern for ourselves so that we may act in all respects as God's agents, as slaves and instruments of God to serve the well-being of others as God defines well-being. All right. I'm talking to the young people and to everyone else, but I want to get the young people's attention. My, My young brothers and sisters whom I love. Here is one of the most foundational and revolutionary principles in the whole Bible. It's a principle that radically contradicts the habit of every man's flesh. So we have to be paying close attention or we'll miss it. It is not your assignment to indulge yourself 
It is not even your assignment to take care of yourself or to protect yourself. Your assignment is to be fully yielded to God as His agent to serve other people. And that cannot happen as long as your attention is focused on you. It can't happen. You're not here to pursue your own pleasure. You're not here to protect your own interest. You're not here to get what you think you deserve from your wife or your husband or your kids or your parents or your brothers and sisters or your employer or your friends or your church. You're not even here to secure your own basic needs. In Matthew 6.33, said, Jesus said, God knows what you need. He knows about food and clothing and shelter. He said, seek the kingdom of God and God will take care of all that. He'll add all those things to you. That's not your assignment. It's not your concern. You're not here to worry about yourself at all. Not in any respect. Does that sound crazy? Does that sound terribly impractical? Especially when you know that there are lots of people who would love to just take advantage of you if you make yourself that vulnerable? That's good. That's how it's supposed to sound. Because the wisdom of God is foolishness to this perishing world. It turns the wisdom of the world upside down and it revolutionizes our lives. If you're a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, but your words and your choices and your actions show that your real commitment is to you, then you have God's personal assurance that you will not get your way. If that's how you're living, and by the way, most people live that way, and a whole lot of Christians live that way, (laughs) you're swimming upstream. And you cannot possibly win because your opponent is the God who made you and who determined your purpose for being here. If you're God's child, it is 100% certain that He will not let you find real or enduring joy or rest or peace or power or fulfillment in a life that is centered on you. It would be unfaithful of God to let that happen, and God is never unfaithful. He has something infinitely better for you than to let you find fulfillment in your obsession with self. Your time doesn't belong to you. Your money doesn't belong to you. Your body doesn't belong to you. Your marriage doesn't belong to you. Your children don't belong to you. You are holy, W-H-O-O-O-L-L-Y, holy, owned by the God who poured out His Son's life's blood to purchase you for Himself. Everything about you belongs to God in all respects. The sooner and the more completely you buy into that as the best of all possible situations for you as a a child of God, the more joyful and peaceful and purposeful and powerful your life will be, and it will never be any of those things until you do. There's a corollary to this. There's a flip side, if you will, that we must not miss. When you accept God's assignment to give no attention to your own well-being and instead to focus your attention on being His instrument to serve others, does that mean that you forfeit your own well-being? Does that mean nobody's taking care of you? 
No, it absolutely does not. The only way for you to have real well-being is to give it up and let God do it. Your well-being is entirely in the hands of God. And that works out really well for you because every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Again, as in all things, Christ is our example of how things really work. In Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, we are called to run with endurance the race that God has set before us, and we're called to do so with our eyes fixed steadfastly on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And the very next thing that Hebrews says is, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Once again, Jesus who deserved only honor endured the shame and hostility that belong to us. And it says he did so for the joy set before him. That's an interesting phrase. You know what that means? The joy set before him, it means the joy in his face. The joy was present. He didn't have to defer the joy. He deferred the hope. Hope that is seen is not hope. If we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly wait for it. Hope is forward and upward looking, but joy is now because of the hope. Our joy is now because of the hope that we have in Christ. And that's how it worked with Christ. His joy was firmly rooted in what he knew God was accomplishing through his sacrifice of himself. That's what, that's what sustained him in the midst of that suffering. That's how it works for us who follow his example. We must suffer much for his sake and for the sake of those whom he has chosen to redeem. Do not be deceived. You will suffer if you follow Christ. We must set aside ourselves and we must be willing to endure much hostility from our fellow sinners. And by the way, that includes our brothers and sisters in Christ because they're still sinning too. Just like, just like we are. The slave is not greater than his master, so we cannot and should not expect things to go smoothly for us this side of heaven if we are walking in Christ. But beloved, in denying ourselves and taking up our cross daily and following Christ, we know without a doubt that it is well with our souls even now. There's a joy that is set right in our faces even now because we know what God is doing. We know without a doubt that the hope we've placed in the fulfillment of all of God's miraculous promises to us is a hope that will not disappoint. See, our well-being ultimately is never in question. (laughs) The reason we don't ever have to give a thought to our well-being is because God already has. Our well-being, your well-being, is no less certain than the well-being of God's own Son. That's one of the great perks of being in Christ. What's true of Him is true of us because we are in Him. 
If any of this feels to you like an exaggeration, an overstatement, if, if it feels to you like something that couldn't possibly work in actual practice, then I urge you on the authority of God's Word to wrestle with it until you find yourself embracing it. Don't redefine it. Don't water it down. Don't qualify it. Buy into it 100% because it is life to you. It'll radically change your life for the better, and it is as real as real gets. It is as practical as practical gets. Don't shove it under the rug and go on doing things the way you've been doing them. If you set aside or compromise God's crystal clear call to you to deny yourself for the sake of Christ and for the sake of those He came to save, every relationship in your life that's important to you will suffer greatly. Your usefulness to God will suffer greatly. And you will not know the joy that belongs to you as your birthright in Christ. By deliberately laying aside all attention to self, we lose absolutely nothing that matters because the God who made us and redeemed us has us covered. (laughs) And instead, we gain everything that matters. In verse 4, Paul picks up on the fact that he just quoted from the Old Testament, from Psalm 69, when he quoted Messiah's words, the reproaches of those who reproach thee fell upon me. And he says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Paul's declaration here is that the Old Testament prophets wrote what they wrote for our instruction. And that goes hand in hand with what he's about to say in verses 7 to 13 about the inclusion of both Jews and Gentiles in God's gracious work of redemption. See, considering all that he said in previous chapters about the inability of the law to make men righteous, it would be easy for the Gentiles in his audience to conclude that that Old Testament stuff was not relevant. Because the law is not going to make them righteous, right? It would be easy for the Jews in his audience to conclude that that Old Testament revelation that they held so dear was somehow no longer relevant to them either. But Paul says that that which was written in ancient days was for our benefit. That reminds me a lot of what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verses 10 to 12. He says, As to this salvation... The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them, the Spirit of Christ within the Old Testament prophets, was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. That passage is worth spending some time thinking about. (laughs) Both Paul and Peter are pointing out to the church that the scriptures speak with one voice. They present one true story, and it's the story of Jesus Christ from cover to cover. The Bible is not two stories, but one. And the church is not two peoples, but one. 
The unity of the Scriptures fits hand in glove with the uniting of both Jews and Gentiles. The covenant people of God in the Old Testament and the covenant people of God now. Uniting of both Jews and Gentiles in one, in Christ, as one household of God. The church is made up of both. God imparts perseverance and encouragement through the Scriptures. This is very interesting to me, the way Paul presents it right here. He says, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. And twice he uses the phrase perseverance and encouragement. Look at this. That through through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus. It should not go unnoticed here that he ties the work of God in imparting perseverance and encouragement with the work of the Scriptures in imparting perseverance and encouragement. He's not talking about two different realms of God's activity, one that's direct and one that's through the Bible. He's talking about one realm of God's activity, about the transforming work that God does in the life of every believer through his word, through the Bible. He encourages us and he imparts perseverance to us through his word. The word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's not just another book. In verse 5, Paul appeals to God to grant to us a spirit of unity. He says, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. That's actually a very loaded statement. His prayer that we'd be of the same mind with one another is not asking God to make us agree on every theological point. That's not the same-mindedness that he's talking about. He's talking about the same thing he was talking about in Romans 12, 16, when he said, be of the same mind toward one another. It's almost the exact same words. Do not be haughty in mind. That means don't. Elevate yourself over another believer. But associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. I believe Paul's point here is essentially the same as that which he makes in 2 Corinthians 5. When he says in verses 14 to 17, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And here's the deal. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Now he's resurrected and ascended. He says, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. When Paul says in Romans 12 and in Romans 15 that we are to be of the same mind toward one another, what he's saying is we are to see each other through a radically different grid than the flesh would have us see. He's saying we are to see Christ in one another. It's actually more forceful than that. We are to look for Christ in one another, even when he's hard to see. We choose to see Christ in one another. 
We deliberately, intentionally, vigilantly choose to deal with our brothers and sisters in Christ based on their identity as our fellow heirs with Christ. From now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh, but only according to Christ. Look at that brother or sister sitting beside you. When God looks at him or at her, he chooses to see the character of Jesus Christ whose one perfect act of righteousness clothed that brother or sister in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God knows better than anyone that we in ourselves are but dust. He knows better than we do the magnitude of our own struggle against the flesh. And yet when He looks at us, He chooses to see our new character, the one that He recreated. When He looks at your brother, He chooses to see that believer's new character, his new identity. He chooses to see Christ, whom He has made to indwell that brother. Who do you choose to see? When you look at your brother or sister, what are you seeing? Are you looking at the old man or are you choosing to focus on the new man? It matters greatly to God which of those two you choose to see. In the next verse, in Romans fifteen six, Paul tells us what the outworking of that same-mindedness, or rather that Christ-mindedness toward one another is. And it's really neat. When we see each other the way God sees us, with one accord and with one voice, we glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) That's what we're here for. If the Westminster Confession is correct that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, and I think it is, then when a passage of Scripture explicitly tells us how we come to glorify God, do you think we should be paying attention to that passage? This one tells us, It is as we think of one another and pray for one another and speak to one another and act toward one another in light of Christ in each other that we come to glorify God with one accord as one person with one voice. And that's what we're here for. If we get this wrong, we bury the light of Christ under a pile of self-absorbed garbage and we cancel out our usefulness to God. If, on the other hand, we humbly submit ourselves to the work of the Spirit through the Word and we get this right, then we are powerfully used by God to advance His kingdom together with one accord and with one voice. As we saw in verses 1 through 3, the example or template by which we know our assignment is Jesus Christ. He's always the one we look at. Paul makes that same connection again in verse 7 as he addresses another potential point of division within the body of Christ, and that was the distinction between Jew and Gentile. 
He says, wherefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. So again, it's just as Christ. We keep looking at him. Now, we said earlier that the word accepted or received, we saw it last week, that the word accepted or received has the connotation in these passages of receiving into community, to receive someone as one of our own. Having declared that Christ is our example to show us how we are to receive one another, Paul immediately focuses attention on the struggle for harmony between Jewish and Gentile believers that was such a large issue in the early church. That struggle has been in focus repeatedly throughout this epistle, as it is in all of Paul's writings. Paul kind of drills down here to provide detail to the claim that Jesus has received to himself and received into his body both Jews and Gentiles. He quotes four different Old Testament passages. Uh, First, I just want to point out, he says, verse 8, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, that's to the Jews, on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers, and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. In granting redemption to the Jews, God fulfills the promises that he gave to the fathers. And in granting redemption to the Gentiles, he glorifies God by displaying his great mercy. He takes us who, according to Ephesians 2, were formerly far off, who were strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God and the world. And he brings us near. And he builds us into one household of God together with believing Jews. There are four passages that Paul quotes, four Old Testament passages. We won't go back and look at the source passages, but he says four ways, four times, that God has included Gentiles. He says, as it is written, therefore I will give praise to thee among the Gentiles, and I will sing to thy name. And again he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And again... Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse, that's Christ, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. There are many, many promises like that scattered all over the Old Testament that talk about God including Gentiles in his redemptive plan. Now why is that important to us? Well, in the early church, there was a major problem with cliquishness and division between Jewish and Gentile believers. That's not our particular problem here today. But we still have a problem with distinctions between people, don't we? Do we have our own cliques within the church that make other people feel like outsiders? I believe that churches like ours that are small and that have been together for a long time have a major tendency toward being insular and cliquish. We make it hard for people who aren't just like us to feel like they're truly received into community with us. Here's a question. What would happen if God granted the revival that many among us have been praying for 
And we started to see a lot of new believers. A lot of people coming to Christ. Do you know that just a couple of miles from here, there's a church that baptized 50 new believers last year. Most of them were unchurched people. What if that happened here? By the way, I think we should be asking God why it hasn't. Would all those new believers feel genuinely received into this family or would they feel like outsiders? What if they didn't look or act very much like us? In case you haven't noticed, we're kind of a lot alike. What if some of those new believers had a bunch of body piercings or tattoos or what if they gathered out front between services for smoke breaks? What if their children didn't dress as modestly as we think they should dress? What if some of them came to faith in the midst of ongoing struggles with alcoholism or drug addiction or pornography addiction or sexual sin? Would we love them as we love each other now? Or would we keep them at a distance until they looked and acted more like us? Would we insulate our children from their children out of fear that our kids might become corrupted? Or would we include our children in God's calling to see Christ in our brothers and sisters? Would we show our children that we're committed to receiving those not-so-attractive brothers and sisters into our family as we were received by Christ when the only history we had was as sinners and enemies of God? When Jesus was here during his earthly ministry, he associated with and received into the kingdom of God harlots and street beggars and tax gatherers and condemned thieves and Jewish priests and Gentile military commanders, and he made no distinctions between them. As Paul declared in Romans 10, 13, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And when a man or a woman or a boy or a girl becomes one of the redeemed of God through faith in Jesus Christ, he becomes your fellow heir with Christ of God. His inheritance is the same as yours. His standing in the eyes of God is the same as yours. He is your brother for all eternity. Is that how we deal with our brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we choose to see Christ in them above all other things? It matters to God. Paul concludes this last set of exhortations in this great epistle with a little benediction that tells us the outcome of living this way. I love this verse. Back in Romans, before we read this, back in Romans fourteen seventeen, Paul said, The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom of God is about. That's kingdom life. Now he says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have joy and peace right now, right here, because of our hope. You and I, we're already citizens of the kingdom of God. We haven't seen it fully manifested yet, but that's already where our citizenship rests. We have joy and peace here and now because of what God has promised to finish giving us later. One of the greatest epiphanies for me as I've studied through Romans this time around for this series is the amazing and transforming power of hope in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 6.19 says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters in the veil. (laughs) At the beginning of Romans 5, Paul said this, and notice how central hope is to this whole scheme. He says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. That means we're looking forward to glorification day. And not only this, But right now, we exult in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope. And that hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. (laughs) The hope that we have in Christ anchors and directs and finishes out the sanctified life. Hope pervades the Christian life at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end. From the moment we discover that we have been justified once and for all through faith in Christ, we exult in the hope of the glory of God. We look forward to the day of our glorification. And as we endure tribulation, which is part and parcel of the Christian life for us who walk with Christ, God builds into us perseverance, proven character, and even greater hope. And at the end of all things, our hope does not disappoint because God keeps his promises. He's going to bring about every word that he has promised to us in Christ. I'm going to finish with just a contrast between misplaced hope and rightly placed hope. Misplaced hope, just to remind you, is hope in the things you can put your hands on now. You want to know what misplaced? That's it. If you can touch it now, you're not supposed to hope in it. Misplaced hope produces the opposite of perseverance. It produces the opposite of joy and peace. It creates self-absorbed, distracted, joyless, useless Christians. And it creates discord and disunity in all of our relationships If your hope is in your control over your own situation, over your finances, over your money, uh, excuse me, over your health, over your work, then you're expecting your situation to be a source of blessing to you that can only come from God. And you're going to spend your days in disappointment and resentment because God has no intention 
of allowing you to find satisfaction in your control over your situation. You're not supposed to hope for what you see. If your hope is in your spouse, then you're expecting your spouse to be a source of blessing that can only come from God, and you're ruining your marriage. If your hope is in your children, you're expecting them to be a source of blessing to you that can only come from God, and you're wrecking your relationship with your own kids. If your hope is in your fellow Christians, you're expecting them to be a source of blessing to you that can only come from God, and you're destroying unity in the body. Your expectations of them are far too high. Misplaced hope, hope that looks around instead of looking forward and upward toward the resurrected Christ in whom our life is hidden, is devastating to the life of the believer. It turns his life into a ship that is hopelessly adrift without anchor, without sail, and without rudder. But rightly placed hope, hope in the amazing gifts that God has promised to give us in Christ, the things we have not yet fully laid hold of, produces perseverance even in the midst of the worst that we encounter in this cursed and fallen world. And that perseverance produces even greater hope. Rightly placed hope gives us an eternal perspective that makes every part of our lives clearer and that puts all of our relationships in a godly perspective. Rightly placed hope makes the body of Christ mature and strong and well-equipped and powerfully used by God. Beloved, may our hope be fixed always and only on Christ. Loving Father, we thank you for the exhortations we've been looking at in these last few chapters. And I pray with all my heart, Lord, that we would not just take a glancing blow off of them and then go on about what we've been doing. I pray, Father, that your spirit would pierce our hearts with these things and, and would lay us bare before you, that we wouldn't be able to walk away from them. I pray, Lord, we pray for this body, that you would turn us into living sacrifices who are transformed, not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds and who work out in our daily lives your good and acceptable and perfect will. We pray, Father, that you would make us as a body yielded and submitted and completely sold out to our Master and our Savior. We know that's why we're here, Father. We don't, wanna, we don't want to hold back. We look to you, Lord, and we pray that you would make it so that we don't. That you would convince us and convict us and, yes, discipline us until we submit to you and until we do things your way. May this body be useful to you as an instrument fully yielded. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.